You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Financial Clarity for Doctors. Rochelle Vanderzanden here with Corey Janoff. Hey, yo. Uh, We normally spend a lot of time talking about investments and retirement planning and saving strategies and all of those kinds of things. Um, Today we're going to talk about one very important aspect of investing in retirement savings, and that is how much you get to pay in taxes. Woohoo! Everyone gets to do that at some point. Sometimes there are some advantages to different kinds of accounts, so we're going to explore what those advantages could be. Um, And we're just going to go through everything, like account by account. Like, what if you invest in this account? What if you invest in this account? And we are going to start with the retirement accounts because those are the ones where we tend to have some tax advantages built in by the IRS. And Corey's going to start us off with talking about those ones. Yes. And kind of... Before I dive in there, the whole point of this is we want to be diversified from a tax standpoint because tax laws are always changing. Every time we get a new president, they want to change taxes around. So some years taxes are going to be higher than others. Different accounts are going to be treated differently from a tax standpoint. So if all of our money is subject to one type of tax, we're kind of backed into a corner because we only have one option. Like if all you have are are accounts that are taxed as ordinary income in retirement, well, you're just at the whims of whatever ordinary income tax rates are. And your, your tax rate is going to be subject to that every year, depending on how much you withdraw from those accounts. But if you have different types of accounts, some that are taxed as income, some that are taxed as capital gains, some that are tax-free, you know, then we have some options to pick from. You know, In years where taxes are really high, we can pull from our accounts that aren't taxed. Years where taxes are really low, maybe we pull from the accounts that do have taxes because the tax rate's lower. So we can kind of pick and choose which accounts to draw from and somewhat control what our taxes are from year to year and reduce our overall tax exposure over time. Now, I threw out some different names and types of taxes there, but we'll kind of explain how they work in a second here. And like Rochelle mentioned, starting with the retirement accounts, because those are probably going to be the most prevalent for everyone listening here. Um, you know, your 403B or your 401K at work, those are the most common. Some of you might have a simple IRA or a SEP. Um, but if it's if it's an account with a funny acronym in front of it, it's it's probably going to be a retirement plan through an employer. And the default uh, tax treatment of those is a pre-tax contribution. So meaning when you contribute money into those accounts, you're getting a tax deduction, which is great. You know, it's like the, the IRS is high-fiving you for saving for retirement. Nice government we have. So for, for easy example, let's say you make $100,000 this year, put $10,000 pre-tax into your 401k at work. The IRS is only going to tax you on 90000 of earnings. Great. We're saving on taxes while saving for retirement. Now, you invest that money however you want to within the plan. Hopefully it grows over time. When you get to retirement and you start withdrawing money from that account, you could be completely retired, not working at all, on a beach, sipping margaritas. Whatever you withdraw from that 
pre-tax account in a given year, the IRS treats the amount you withdraw as if you worked and earned it as income and you're taxed at ordinary income tax rates. And again, some years those rates are going to be higher than others. It kind of depends on what the tax environment is. So you can expect it to fluctuate over time. But just know those pre-tax accounts, the 401ks, the 403bs, again, most common. Um, you get the tax deduction while you're working, which helps. You know, a lot of you, that's really attractive. You're in some of the top income earning brackets while you're working. So we'll take whatever tax deductions we can get. But just know you're going to have to pay taxes on that money in retirement. And hopefully in retirement, you're going to be in a lower income tax bracket just because you're no longer at your peak earning years and you know, if we're no longer saving for retirement, kids are out of the house, mortgages paid off, we don't need as much money in retirement to support the lifestyle that we were living while we were working and earning that peak income. So all else being equal, taxes will probably be a little bit lower. So that's why those pre-tax accounts are appealing. Tax deductions at the high tax rates, pay tax in retirement at the low tax rates. In theory, that's how it's supposed to work. But just know you're paying taxes on that money in retirement. What's next, Rochelle? Yeah, those ones are, are pretty cool, again, because you get those tax deductions up front. But I think one thing that, Corey, you touched on in the beginning is that tax rates from year to year are really unpredictable. And right now, in terms of, like, historically speaking, we are at relatively low tax rates, income tax rates. So it could be that if tax rates adjust upward and you're in retirement, even if you're having less income, you could be paying like a, you know, a similar tax rate, if not a higher tax rate. The one other thing is that while you're in training, you're likely making a lot less income than you expect to be making in your peak income earning years, which is where a lot of those post-tax or Roth accounts can be really attractive. And that's the other main type of retirement plan is a Roth retirement plan. So Roth retirement plans, a lot of people think, okay, that's my Roth IRA, which yes, a Roth IRA, like a, a Roth individual retirement account is one type of Roth account. But sometimes with your work plans, you may also have the option to be able to save on a Roth basis into your, your work plan. So when you set up your contributions, it could be you can place a percentage of your income into a pre-tax bucket and maybe you have an option to place a percentage of your income or, or a dollar amount into a Roth bucket. And so that just determines the tax treatment. That pre-tax is what Corey was talking about where we get a tax deduction now. The Roth bucket, you do not get a tax deduction right now for putting money into any sort of Roth account, whether it's a 401k, 403b, or IRA. However, that money gets to be invested just like it can in your pre-tax retirement account. It can grow. And then when you take it out in retirement, as long as you're the right age and everything like that, you can take it out and you don't have to pay any taxes on that growth that happened or on the money that you put in because you already paid taxes on it. So in that same example that Corey, you were talking about earlier with a, a person who's earning $100,000. If you're earning $100,000, you pay, place $10,000 into a Roth retirement account. Right now, you're still going to be taxed as if you earned $100,000. So no tax break right now. But let's say that $10,000 grows to $60,000 by the time you're retired. You get to take out all of that $60,000 and you don't pay taxes on any of it at that point. So that can be really, really attractive because it is or it tends to be a fairly small bucket that you have access to. If you can put money into a Roth IRA, it's only $6,000 right now. That's the most you can put in. Um, some employer plans have a Roth option. Others don't even have that option. 
So it could be like the Roth IRA is the only option you have to put money away on a post-tax basis or on a Roth basis. But again, because that bucket is going to be so small and it, it, it will likely be a fairly small portion of your, your dollars in retirement that are non-taxable, it makes it more of a priority to get kind of as much money as you can in there, especially when you're in your lower income earning years and you're at a fairly low tax bracket, and especially when you're young. Because you know that $10,000 that we're talking about here, if you have 30 years for that $10,000 to grow, that's a lot more attractive than if you have maybe 10 years for that money to grow because all of that growth is also something you don't have to pay taxes on. So I like Roth accounts a lot when people are making less than they expect to make when they're young. Um, and also if you, know, if you have a lot of pre-tax savings already, ideally we can get at least some Roth savings going for you so you have some money in retirement that's not taxable. Anything else you would add there, Corey? Your future self loves Roth accounts, tax-free yes. money in retirement. Your current self loves pre-tax accounts, but ideally we try and appeal to both current and future self and get a little bit of both uh, in our lives. So take it, maximize those those pre-tax and Roth accounts. Um, you know the the nice thing or not so nice thing, depending on how you look at it, is because they're so tax advantageous. Um, the the government imposes limits on how much you can contribute to them. So, you know, usually you try and contribute the max allowed each year, and then that's that. And and for most of you, you're going to need to save a little bit more or a lot more outside of those accounts to still ultimately achieve your retirement goals. So there are other types of investment accounts out there. Now we'll we'll kind of talk about the. The, the the almost retirement accounts, which you'll uh, find through some employers, not all employers, but some employers. And these would be like your 457B accounts or deferred compensation plans, non-qualified deferred compensation plans. Typically, you're only going to find these through an employer. Um, a lot of the tax treatment is similar to pre-tax accounts, although I have seen some employers offer Roth contributions to 457s. Those are a little unique, but um, but they're, they're generally going to be pre-tax, so you save on taxes now, can put money more money away for retirement, and then you just have to pay taxes on that money when you withdraw it in retirement. We won't get into the nitty-gritty of how these accounts work and the rules around them. There are some minor differences uh, in how they function, but for the objective today, just tax treatment of accounts, those are another type of pre-tax account that uh, some of you may have access to through your employer. And then outside of our work, there's an unlimited number of ways you can invest your money. And that's where these, for lack of a better term, non-retirement accounts come into play, Rochelle. Absolutely. And they go by a lot of names, which I think can make it very confusing for people. But just think of it as an investment account that's not a retirement account. So sometimes people call them brokerage accounts. Sometimes people call them non-qualified accounts, um, joint investment accounts, anything like that. Um, if you have a Robinhood or an Acorn account, if it's not an IRA, it's probably a brokerage account of some kind. So all of these accounts, basically, like they have less rules in terms of limits and things like that you can put as much money as you want into an investment account like the government doesn't care how much money you invest 
they're going to limit how much you can put in the retirement accounts and how much they're going to give you some tax breaks for. But if you want to invest money, you can really put as much money as you're able to into investment accounts. There's also no rules about when you can withdraw money. So with the retirement accounts, generally speaking, you have to be age 59 and a half before you can withdraw money without penalty. And there's some exceptions there, but generally speaking, that's the number you should keep in mind. With the non-retirement accounts, they're a lot more flexible in terms of when you can withdraw money because there are no penalties for early withdrawals because there's no such thing as an early withdrawal. There is like some advent or advantages to holding on to investments for at least a year, which we'll touch on in a second, but you can take it out whenever you need to really. So if you're a person who's saving a lot, who's really, really, really trying to get to that retirement state or that like readiness for retirement early before age 60, this is the account that you're going to rely on for most of your spending because the rest of it, you're going to have to pay tax penalties if you want to take it out early. So if you get to age 50 and you're really in a place where you have enough money to be retired, but everything's tied up in retirement accounts, like that's a bummer. You don't want to take out that money and pay a whole bunch in, in taxes. Instead, we can rely on those non, non-retirement non accounts, the just general investment accounts, and you can take money out. And what you end up doing is paying capital gains taxes. So a lot of people have heard of capital gains taxes, but they're not necessarily familiar with how they work. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that. Um, but basically, when you make a contribution into an investment account, that money is, is likely coming from your checking account. It's coming from money that you already paid taxes on. So the money that you contribute into those accounts or that you invest in those accounts is not money you have to pay taxes on again because you already paid taxes on it. Instead, what you get taxed on is is the money that grows in the account, so on the gains. But you don't have to pay gains necessarily, like just because your investment grew. You pay taxes on the gain when they are realized, which either means you got some sort of distribution from a mutual fund, like you got dividends or something like that, or maybe you sold out of an investment, and when you sold, it was worth more than when you bought it. That's also considered a realized gain. So when you realize gains, that's when you pay taxes. How much you end up paying in taxes depends on your tax bracket, but also on how long you've held the investment. So if you hold the investment for six months and you sell it, it's gonna be the same tax rate as your income tax rate. But if you hold on to an investment for longer than a year and then you sell it, then you get to pay what's called a long-term capital gains tax rate, which is a lower tax rate than your income tax rate. Um, Just a couple of examples. If your highest marginal income tax rate is 24%, then your long-term capital gains tax rate is 15%. If your highest marginal income tax bracket is 37%, you know, you're probably making quite a bit of money, then your long-term capital gains rate is is only 20%. And those tax brackets change a little bit over time, but generally speaking, those long-term capital gains tax rates are usually lower than your income tax brackets. Um, yeah, I, I noticed, Corey, that you made an extra note here about the additional Medicare tax. You want to mention that real quick? Yeah, so in addition to just the 15 or 20% capital gains tax, um, the... I think if you're single and over 200k of income and married, if over 250, I forget the exact threshold. Don't hold me to that, and it's going to change over time as well. There's that additional 3.8% Medicare tax, so you could be paying 18.8% capital gains or 23.8% if you're in that top tax bracket. Um, even though it's technically not a capital gains tax, it is for 
your concern. So, and that doesn't count state taxes. So you may have additional taxes at the state level too. So you'll have to check with where you reside on that one. Yeah. And one important note, like we're not accountants. <laughs> if you really want to understand all of the taxes, you definitely especially if you're going to be investing a lot, it makes sense to have a CPA. And also like these things change all the time. So we're talking about like snapshot in time. How does this work? But, you know, two years from now, three years from now, some of these rules could be different. Absolutely. Now, another cool thing to note, we, we talked about if you're, you know, we gave a couple examples if you're at a 15% or 20% capital gains. Well, if your federal income bracket, if your adjusted gross income lands you in the 12% or lower federal bracket, you don't pay any capital gains tax. So you could realize some gains and, and not have to pay taxes on them. And why this is you know, beneficial and, and why we want to have different accounts from a different tax standpoint. I kind of talked about it at the beginning, uh, but let's walk through like an actual example. So say we have current tax rates that were in the current tax rules that we're in. Again, they're going to change over time. It's going to look different when a lot of you are actually in retirement. But let's say you need to live on $10,000 per month to support your lifestyle. Again, kids are out of the house, mortgage is paid off, you know, we have our grocery bill, property taxes, utilities. I mean, we can live pretty comfortably on ten grand a month. So, um, hundred twenty thousand a year. So we got pre-tax accounts. We have Roth accounts. We have accounts uh, that are treated for, uh, as t capital gains when we when we pull money out of those. So we need to get to ten thousand a month or one hundred twenty thousand a year. So let's say we take fifty thousand out of our pre-tax accounts, another twenty thousand out of our Roth accounts. And then the remaining 50000 out of those capital gains accounts. But like Rochelle mentioned, you only pay taxes on the earnings or the growth in those accounts, not the cost basis, which is the amount you put in. So let's say of that 50000 that you withdraw, 20000 is cost basis and 30000 is capital gain. Well, we don't pay any taxes on the Roth money, so now we have... 50,000 from pre-tax accounts plus 30,000 of gain from our Roth account or from our taxable account, bringing the total to 80,000, 50,000 pre-tax, 30,000 of gain from that capital gains account. 80,000, if you're married and file taxes jointly, you're in the 12% federal bracket. So you don't actually have to pay any capital gains taxes on that 30,000. So you're essentially living on $120,000 and only paying taxes on 50,000 of it in that year. Just fabulous. Now, <laughs> this doesn't even take into consideration your standard deduction of, you know, if you're married it's about 25,000 or so. So really you could live on more like 145,000 and and only pay taxes on 50. Um, so pretty neat. So if you're diversified from a tax standpoint, you can, you know, utilize the rules to your advantage and really have a relatively small tax burden in retirement if you have all those different accounts available to you. Absolutely. One thing we don't talk about a lot is Medicare, which can make this a little bit more complicated in terms of, of what you're paying taxes on. But 
especially if you're at a point where you're not even collecting, or not Medicare, I'm sorry, Social Security income. Um, but if you're not even collecting Social Security income, it, it's pretty simple to calculate. The Social Security stuff makes it really complicated in terms of, of tax treatment and probably needs its entire own episode at some point. <laughs> um, one other account that we haven't talked about yet, and it's kind of a, a unicorn, shall we say, <laughs> but it's the, the health savings account which is sort of magical in some ways. And I think a lot of people get really, really obsessed with these accounts. And we don't want to like prioritize health savings accounts above everything else, which I have definitely seen clients do. But there are some pretty incredible tax advantages to that account, especially if you're already doing a whole bunch of retirement savings and you need another place to save. So with the health savings account, you can only have access to that if you have a high deductible health plan. And then I, I think the limit is around 7300 or so if you have a family. So you can put about that much money into a health savings account. And then you get a tax deduction for that very similar to like a pre-tax retirement plan contribution. So it gets reduced from your taxable income. And then normally, like the idea is you use that money for medical expenses on a pre-tax basis. So you got that tax deduction from your income. You can use the money to pay for medical expenses and you don't have to pay taxes on any of that income, which is great. That's, that's a good advantage of a health savings account. Um, however, if you are in a position where you really have excess cash flow, you can do very different things with that money. In, in a lot of HSAs, you can invest the money that you put into that account. So let's say we put it in on a pre-tax basis, you invest the money, then you can let it grow and instead use money out of your checking account or whatever to cover any medical expenses that do come up. And then the idea is like you can let that money grow and even if the money grows, even if you have growth in that account, let's say it goes from 7,300 to 20,000 by the time you need to take it out. When you take it out, if you use it for medical expenses, you're still not gonna pay taxes even on the growth, which it's like the one account where you can get a tax deduction, you can invest it, it can grow, and then you can take out money and still not pay taxes on it. So if you can end up using that money for medical expenses after it has potentially grown, that can be very, very advantageous. So even in retirement, you can use it for like your Medicare insurance premiums or like, you know, supplemental insurance premiums, all of that kind of stuff can be paid from your HSA without having to pay taxes on it. And when you reach age 65, you can use that money very much like a pre-tax retirement account. So if you know, like, maybe you're not going to have that much in medical expenses. So we have $100,000 in this HSA. We really just don't think that we're going to need all of that for our medical costs. At any point, you can take it out and pay taxes on it very much like you would a 401k or a pre-tax retirement plan. But... You know, if you think that you will need that money for medical expenses, that's going to be the best use of it, for sure. Um, the biggest downside is that if you do need to take that money out for something other than medical expenses um, before age 65, you're going to pay taxes and you're going to pay some penalty taxes. So we really don't want to do that. So don't put any money in there that you think you're going to need if you can't just leave it and not touch it and only use it for those kinds of purposes. Anything else to add there, Corey? No, HSAs are, like you said, pretty magical. It's the only triple tax-free account. Tax deduction, tax-free growth, tax-free withdrawals if used for medical expenses. Um, so we've talked about the HSAs, the workplace retirement plans, and IRAs. 
um, the, the capital gains accounts, which pretty much anything you invest in outside of work or an IRA is going to be subject to capital gains taxes. So pretty much all your investments, no matter what they are, are going to fall into that capital gains bucket. One, maybe not exception, but just kind of like side bucket or tangent to that capital gains category is the world of real estate or rental properties. So you know, many of you may own rental properties or aspire to own them one day. And um, you know, there's a couple different ways that these are taxed. So rental income is taxed as ordinary income, just like as if you worked in earned it. You pay ordinary income taxes on that. So good, good thing if, you're, if your rental properties are, are generating more revenue than they cost, you'll have net income, which you got to pay taxes on. Good problem to have. Um, however, you can deduct your expenses on those properties. You can claim depreciation uh, and all that stuff can help offset the the rental income to where it'll reduce your income tax burden and maybe even eliminate the income tax burden altogether um, in those years. So like that depreciation expense, that's just a paper deduction. You can still be cash flow positive and, and pocket money and not have to pay taxes on it if the things line up correctly. Again, work with your accountant to figure out all this stuff because it's going to be different for every circumstance. Um, but th there are ways to, to reduce that income tax burden. Now, if and when you sell a property, just like the other investments, if you sell it for more than you bought it for, you got to pay capital gains taxes on the profits. So for example, if you buy a property for 300000 and sell it down the road for $500,000, you are going to have to pay capital gains taxes on that $200,000 of, of profit that you made from selling that property. However, you probably took the depreciation on the property to reduce the income tax burden, and that you know income or that depreciation essentially just reduces your cost basis on the property. So, overly simplified example: if you purchase the property for three hundred thousand over the years claimed 100,000 worth of depreciation, that brings your cost basis down to 200,000. So if you sell the property for 500,000, you now owe taxes, capital gains taxes on $300,000 of profits. Same property, example one, bought for 300, sold for 500, pay taxes on 200K of profits. Example two, same exact scenario. It's just because you claim that depreciation expense, you got to pay capital gains taxes on a little bit more when you sell it. Now, this works out well because the depreciation offset ordinary income taxes, and you're essentially just trading ordinary income taxes for capital gains taxes. And historically, capital gains taxes are a bit less than ordinary income taxes, especially at the tax brackets most of you are in. It's going to be a favorable trade-off. So um, you know, you're trading a higher tax for a lower tax in most scenarios. Now, last thing to note here, you could potentially avoid all of your capital gains taxes if you just hold on to the property forever and pass away then you leave it to your heirs and your heirs get a step up in basis. You know, if you want to leave the property to your kids, um, it's worth 500,000 and they inherit it. They now own the property as if they bought it for 500,000. And if they decided to sell it, they wouldn't pay any taxes on that. If they sold it for more than 500,000, they would have to pay capital gains taxes on those proceeds. But that erases all of those previous unrealized gains. The other thing you can do 
you know, which is sometimes common for real estate, um, you know, investors, if you will, is you have one property and you want to buy a new property, sell the original property and buy a new one. You can do what's called a 1031 exchange where you're essentially trading the properties. Um, you sell the one, buy the other. There's a bunch of rules involved. You have to follow a bunch of protocols. It's not very straightforward, but, um, but if it's done correctly and within the rules, you can defer or roll your capital gains on the property you're selling into the next property. So rather than paying that tax on those capital gains when you sell it, you just roll that capital gains into the next property you buy. And if you sell the second property, you'd pay the total tax, the sum of the two capital gains on both of those. So it'd be a larger tax bill at that point. But again, if you pass away, leave it to your heirs, step up in basis, wipes out all those capital gains and resets it. So you, you can definitely, um, if it's if it's done strategically, uh, avoid a lot of tax over time if the plan is to hold those properties forever and, and leave them to your heirs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of that real estate stuff gets really complicated, but a lot of times when I have clients who are like, oh, my parents want to gift me this property, I'm like, you should talk to an accountant. <laughs> Please don't do that before you talk to an accountant. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons to hold on to things and, and pass pass things on when you pass away, basically. But just a, a couple of final thoughts. I'm, we spent a lot of time talking about like the tax treatment of accounts today. Keep in mind that like the accounts themselves, the 401k, the IRA, the HSA, whatever it is, that does not determine the performance in the account. Like the account has nothing to do with it. It is only the tax treatment that's being determined by the account type. Um, how the performance is determined is, is by the investments inside of the account. And a lot of times it, it's the same kinds of investments you can use in your work plans. It's always going to be like a list of 30, 40 mutual funds most of the time. Sometimes you have access to like a link where you can get more fund options. But in general, it's going to be some mutual fund options in your non-qualified account. Same kind of thing, mutual funds, stocks, bonds, all of the, that kind of stuff. So whatever you pick to invest in, that's what determines like whether your money grows or not and how much it grows by, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so keep that in mind. Like, don't think that these things happen happen automatically when you open accounts and put money in. That's not exactly how it works. And then the other thing, just to circle back to real quick, is that you know we don't know what tax rates are going to be four years from now, much less 30, 40, 50 years from now while everyone is in retirement. Um, and so like Corey said at the beginning, if we can build in some diversification by tax type so we can like piece things together when you're retired and, and make decisions based on the tax like the tax at that time, that can be really, really helpful. So we don't want to be just making decisions for what is beneficial for me right now. We want to think about retired person 30 years from now, what does future me want? <laughs> and And probably it's not to be completely dependent on what tax rates are at the time. Yeah, I think worth reiterating, taxes are going to change. Tax treatment of accounts could change. Heck, a, new types of accounts and new types of taxes could pop up. You know, 401ks 
weren't created until I think the late 70s and they weren't more commonly adopted until the 80s and 90s. Roth accounts didn't exist until 1999 and they weren't available in employer plans until 2007. 529 accounts, I think those didn't began until the late 90s. We didn't even talk about 529s, but those are basically like Roth IRAs for college, after-tax contribution, tax-free withdrawals, a fuse for education. So for all we know, 10, 20, 30 years from now, there's going to be a whole new types of accounts with new ways that they're taxed um, that could be advantageous uh, for some of you. So it's a constant evolving world we live in. And having those different accounts available and utilizing them gives you flexibility as time goes on and and really sets yourself up for success in retirement because taxes are going to change. Again, every time we get a new president, they try, sometimes unsuccessfully, but they try to change taxes around. And so you can expect every four to eight years, taxes are probably going to change and adjust and uh, having those different accounts that are treated differently from a tax standpoint can prepare you um, to to have you know to benefit in those years. You know we can take advantage of of taxable accounts when taxes are low. We can avoid taxes with uh, Roth accounts when taxes are high. So it gives you some flexibility down the road. Definitely, and saving more is always also always better. <laughs> Save more. <laughs> Yes. If you just save a whole lot of money, it doesn't really matter how it's taxed. You'll be just fine. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. See you later. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP, Instagram at Corey Janoff, or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance, or on Instagram, Vanderzanden Rochelle, or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vanderzanden. Check out all of the podcast episodes on thefinitygroup.com slash podcast, on our Finity Group YouTube channel, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our Financial Clarity blog at thefinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Finity Group, LLC.